Retro Wrestling. I am your host, John. Oh, wait a minute, Barry. I'm checking my notes here. It says here, we don't just stick to wrestling. We are breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, my friend. How you doing? I'm, d- I'm a million bucks today, Jeff. I was 100%. just getting ready to go to Witchies, too. So, on this episode <laughs> of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the three, bre- breast? the three best friends that you didn't know you had, we are going to be discussing just, oh, a myriad of topics, Barry. Excellent use of the word myriad. We are going to one of the, for our match of the week, one of the best angles of the entire decade of the 1980s. We are going to the studios of WTBS on March 28th, 1981, Barry. Ted DiBiase and the Junkyard Dog taking on the fabulous Freebirds. Besides all that, Barry has got a little food talk, Barry. We're going to be talking tipping. We're going to be talking about tipping with Barry Rose. We're going to be doing an elongated, excellent use of the word elongated, Barry, elongated Florida man or not segment. Let's see what else we got, Barry. Uh, Let me throw a couple things at you, Barry. Barry, you finally finished watching Stranger Things. Tell me what you thought of the season. Oh. And by the way, someone told me we have to wait like two friggin' years for the final season. Oh, seriously? Yeah, what the hell? That's, uh, yeah. So, I like... Those kids are all going to be like 30. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're way too... And reality is they're already way too old. I like this season. What I... I think my my takeaway and and certainly the reflection I had post season is I think they would have been smart to wrap it up this year and I, I you know I think there's inherent problems with coming back in two years I think there was a lot about this season that actually tied it into the first I mean it did right it tied it into the first season and things made a lot more sense I didn't like which I believe we discussed on air a few weeks back. I felt like the first couple of episodes, the bullying, especially of L, was taken a little farther than it probably needed to. And it was just all she did was essentially cry, I think, the first three episodes. And it was good. But by the end of the episode, I was ready for it to be the end of the episode where normally I'm not like that. Like you talked about Better Call Saul, right? And, it, it, you know, Better Call Saul to me is a show that when it's over, I'm like, fuck, why can't they give us an extra half an hour or something like that? I kind of felt like the personalities of the kids really haven't changed, even though they've grown up and it, it just, it, it's time to me. It's, it's become time. One of the main hooks for me of the show was the nostalgia factor. And I also feel like they've gotten away from that. And certainly the Kate Bush song this year, Running Up a Hill or whatever it's called, very, very popular. I believe it's made the Billboard charts and they played like it. number one. It's and they like played it. fucking crazy. They're, they were playing it once an episode, sometimes twice an episode. But from the overall, I do feel like the nostalgia had really gotten away from the show. The Winona Ryder character doesn't really do a whole lot for me any longer. I do love the other guy. What? Who's that guy? The guy that, that she went to Russia with to rescue. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Whoever the fuck that guy is, I thought he was great. I think it's time. I, I, I think they should have tried to wrap it up. And waiting two years, you'll well, again, yeah, you'll well, get well, people that are excited about it. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of challenges that are going to come with that. So let's be honest. COVID played a part in the two-year delay. And because of some of the uh, 
financial problems that Netflix reportedly is having right now, this is their number one cash cow by far. Sure. So, you know, in a way, the, the thing that popped into my mind was the way that Seinfeld, I'm not not comparing it to this, but but just this particular aspect, Seinfeld, uh, towards the end, really was kind of lagging. You know, it really, if you're honest, after Larry David left, it was it was a different show. But it was such a cash cow, you know, for NBC and for Jerry Seinfeld, uh, you know, that they didn't want to stop it. And so I'm sure part of the reason why Netflix wants to continue Stranger Things sure. is because, you know, this is the one show they have that they're guaranteed to get subscriptions off of and they're, they're you know, getting money off of. And why would you want to, you know, walk away from that? So from that point of view, I understand it. You're right. The, these kids are are getting way too old for the parts now and and you know they're they're aging out and geez if you uh if you look back and you see a video of the kids uh when the show first started it's like pretty stark how different a lot of the kids look because they've just gotten so much older you know uh particularly the kid that I think plays Will and uh who's the uh the redheaded girl the one that's oh, uh, uh, uh Max Max you know like the difference in what she looks like now and what she looks like when the show first started is pretty unbelievable how much you know how much older and more mature they both look and the poor kid that plays Will has to have that goofy haircut uh and i think the guy the actor doesn't want to have that haircut anymore what a but, horrible haircut yeah, oh, yeah, yeah we can yeah. clear so he's got the haircut I think it's the same haircut that he had in the first season yeah, when he was a young kid. Yeah, it's one thing to have kid. a bowl haircut when you're yeah. eight. It's another thing to have it when you're 15, you know? Yep. And, uh, but so anyway, so yeah. But the show uh, is, uh, it's so popular and so incredible. Uh, so I just real quick, uh, Barry and I were talking about this before. I want to recommend two things, and I'm going to throw it to Barry for a couple of shows he's been watching. Uh, I am watching uh, on FX the show with Jeff Bridges, The Old Man, uh, which also has John Lithgow. And uh, is a really good show. And Amy Brenneman from NYPD Blue and some other shows is on that. I enjoyed it. Speaking of Netflix, my wife and I have been watching uh, and just finished watching The Terminal Project with, uh, oh, God, Barry. The guy from Jurassic Park, Chris, uh, what's his name? Chris Pratt. Chris, Chris Pratt. Pratt, thank you. Uh, he's on that with Emile Hirsch, uh, Gene Triplehorn. So there are some actors whose names you know. Uh, it's an eight-episode uh, arc. And uh, it's interesting uh, because I've heard that they've uh, already looking into doing season two, which uh, I thought it was strictly going to be a one season ru uh, run there. So, Barry, you told me about a couple of shows that you've been watching that you really enjoy. Why don't you tell the folks about those? Yeah, absolutely. So The Bear is uh, the show that completely caught me off. I I knew nothing about this show. I'm flipping around Hulu and it's uh, it, it's about a uh, a chef. And I'm like, you know what? I should give it a shot. And within the first 10 minutes, I could feel my heart racing. I'm sweating a little bit. This is the most visually, the most accurate description I have ever seen of what life can be like in a really busy kitchen to the point that it's unnerving, the point that it's, uh, you know, shit, I, I, I may have to go rest after. Like it gave me nightmares in some ways. Are you I trying will... to tell me that MasterChef or Hell's Kitchen is not an accurate <laughs> Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you. And uh, I will tell you, if you've ever read the book, and I know that you're a huge reader, by Anthony Bourdain called Kitchen Confidential, that had a similar effect on me because uh, I remember reading that book and just being like, oh, my God, he's captured what it's like. But this television show, in a nutshell, is you've got a classically trained chef who is considered one of the best chefs in the United States 
He works at the best restaurant in the U.S., moves back to Chicago, leaves the restaurant, moves back to Chicago to take care of the Italian beef, much like Portillo's, the Italian beef sandwich shop because his brother has committed suicide. And he doesn't want this to uh, to fall by the wayside. His brother leaves him the restaurant. He leaves everything he knows to go run this restaurant. So you've got a classically trained chef who can run a kitchen trying to work in what's essentially a sandwich shop. So it's really uh, culturally, it's very different, but it's also not a comedy. You know, this is something that you know, CBS could have quickly turned into the madcap comedy of the year, right? They didn't do that. This is a drama for the most part. There is a lot involved with it. It is graphic at times with the language. There are some great subplots, but this show delivers from start to finish, from the first episode to the last, clear to see that uh, season two is coming next year. Great acting. The lead actor uh, was on, fuck, what's the name of that? Uh, Shameless. The Showtime show Shameless. He was a uh, lip on that show. He is a great actor. But for the most part, there's not a lot of recognizable names here. John Berenthal, who you had talked about, was in a the re- recent HBO show. Yes, uh, we own this town. We own this town. He's on, I think, a couple of episodes in a flashback. He plays the brother who's committed suicide. And then Abby Elliott, who was on Saturday Night Live for a few years and also the daughter of uh, the great Chris Elliott, is on this show. But highly recommended. The first episode, I think, is 23 or 24 minutes. I posted a link in our Facebook group. And as we often say, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, why not? You're really missing out. It's an extension of this show, but the first episode, the writer uh, who did the review for Rolling Stone said that they actually quit halfway through the first episode because it was disturbing. They, they They were getting anxiety. Their heart was racing based off of the way the show was filmed, and they also say they went back and finished up the season, and boy, are they glad that they did. Highest recommendation. Michael Herrick posting today, the day before the show is released in our Facebook group, saying that I understated how good this show is. Holy cow, it is that good. I, I, I'd i be hard pressed to think that anyone watching this would be disappointed, Jeff. You are a man who is very rarely understated, uh, uh, you know, understated, <laughs> exactly, understated, you know, but but uh, so anyway, uh, didn't you say there was another one that you were watching also? Uh, well, Yellowstone, which I mean, that's not a revelation because uh, people I think I think it's like an over 30 or over 35 crowd have been watching Yellowstone. I am midway through season three. It is so it falls into the wheelhouse of shows that you and I would love, Jeff. It's got this Bosch vibe to it, even though it has nothing to do with Los Angeles or police detective or anything like that. But it is an hour long series that every week it's a soap opera. It develops the act. Kevin Costner is fantastic. In and this. what channel is this on or what network? I'm watching it on Peacock. So I believe it's on. Do you get Peacock, Jeff? I do, because I'm going to mention a show that I started watching on Peacock and I've only watched two episodes. But please uh, finish up. 
So on that note, it's on Peacock. I believe the current season, though, might be on Paramount. When I finish up this, I'm going to do Paramount for maybe a month just to binge it and get through it. I don't think I need the uh, the Paramount forever, but the sh- Yellowstone is that good. It is, and, and everybody says it. It's again, this is not a breaking revelation. I just didn't think it would be as good as it is, and it is that good, Jeff. And I will tell you that I. Uh, when I was looking after we finished uh, the Terminal Project, I was looking for a new show to start watching. Uh, and I'd always heard good things <clears throat> about this show. I'd never seen a single episode. And I watched on Peacock the first two episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And you said you uh, are a fan of that show? I am. So I've watched, I don't know how many I've watched, but I've watched a lot. That's a really funny show. Yeah, no, and and I started watching it. Uh, Andre, is it? Brower is that Andre Brow, the fucking great Andre Brower. Yeah, uh, he's hilarious as the uh, super serious captain or whatever lieutenant, whatever he is. Uh, and uh, Terry Crews, uh, I recognize uh, yep. the very muscular, uh, ball headed guy is is very funny too. Uh, just a very very amusing show. And speaking of amusing shows, I was telling Barry before we started recording. So I, I'm scrolling through uh, one of the channels uh, for uh, looking for stuff to DVR, and I happen to see that Barney Miller had back-to-back episodes and, you know, Barney Miller and I recorded him, I watched him and I was, I was laughing. I told Barry, it's one of those shows. And there are other shows like this too, that, you know, maybe you didn't watch every episode. Maybe this isn't like Seinfeld to me or, or one of those other shows, but when you pick it up and you say, Oh, look what's there. Let me check it out. And you watch it. And you're like, why don't I watch this show all the time? Because it's a great show. It is so well-written so many great character actors on there that are just amusing and funny. And you said you were a fan of Barney Miller. I was absolutely. Yeah. So good stuff. So now all that being said, Barry, we've got our little TV talk out of the way. Why don't we go to our match of the week? Now this week, Barry, sort of interesting. Well, I'll be the one to judge that (laughs) we are actually going to a match and Barry, 249 episodes. I believe this is the first time that we have ever done a match involving the junkyard dog. Am I correct about that? I want to say I thought we did one other match. Son of a bitch, you're here to agree with me. All right. Yeah. But I but I don't think it was a, a I think it was part of an angle in from Mid-South, if I'm correct. Okay. So this week we are talking March 28th, 1981. We are talking Ted DiBiase and the Junkyard Dog taking on, oh, Barry, those villainous freebirds. Damn hippie freaks. Terry Gordy and buddy Jack Roberts with Michael Hayes at ringside. It's the infamous pile driver angle. Barry, you had a chance to watch it on the pristine video copy that I sent you. I think you may have referenced uh, another Arcadian Vanguard podcast uh, personality uh, when uh, you started watching the tape. Yeah, I did. It's uh, this, you know, this is one of the old John McAdam jokes. It looks like a 50th generation to the point that it it is really hard to see it. But I'll tell you what, whenever I see something that's literally and it probably is let all kidding aside, it's probably seventh or eighth generation. It probably did come from McAdam, but it is uh, whenever I see seventh or eighth generation on YouTube, I always in my head go, well, there's got to be a first generation somewhere, right? <laughs> like it had to come. Well, and the, the other thing you could say is if it's this many generations, it's because it's good enough to where, you know, yes. there were all these, all these copies being made. And in this case, this is certainly good enough, at least in my opinion. What'd you think, Bear? 
Yeah, I mean, this is I don't know where this ranks and and but this is this is and, and I'm sure Meltzer would have had some sort of uh, listing on this. This has got to be one of the top angles of the 80s. Well, as a matter of fact, Barry, I believe oh. there was an article that was written on by someone on the top 20 angles of the 1980s. I can't imagine who that would have been. Oh. That wrote that celebrated author, celebrated writer, raconteur, and man about town, Barry Rose. Where Please. Did, where, <laughs> where, did, where did this wind up on the list? Uh, no, I didn't rank them in terms of which one was the best. I just, okay. this is 20 and, uh, you know, and this, of course, was uh, was one of the angles because, you know, like uh, when I started writing the article, it had been seven years and I still remembered the impact that this angle had on me. Yeah, yeah, it really did, too. And, it, you know, it had first off, it had, I think, this impacted all wrestling fans because of the believability out of this angle. Secondly, this is one of those angles because in some ways this is a continuation of the feud with Junkyard Dog, which had occurred two or three years earlier. I don't know. I mean, but it had been a while, but this is really spectacular. And that when you watch the Freebirds, especially at this stage, and this is pre-world-class wrestling, these guys, in my opinion, could have gone anywhere. Anywhere in the country, they could have gone and they should have been the main events at this stage. And this, again, this is 1981, right? So, and I don't care where, whether you're going up to New York, the AWA that wouldn't have fit in quite as well, but any territory in the country. And look, they were smart. You, what they wound up in Georgia, which was, you know, I, I always look at Georgia and uh, the mid South and Texas as their home base. Like they were really aligned with three territories. And I know that they worked in the AWA and they were even in Florida at one point, but you look at them and, you know, for a lot of people, they'll look at them and they'll still go world-class, right? With the Freebirds and the Von Erichs, absolutely. Others will look at this and go, Mid-South, it's where they cut their teeth. It's where they wound up for so many years. And even when Mid-South became the UWF, they were there. They're there at the end, right? And then there's Georgia, which, in my opinion, is what gave them their biggest national exposure earlier in their career because they were on TBS and Look, they didn't just do great on TBS. They were next level on TBS. They were put in the top programs. They were given great angles. It it all seemed to work. And this angle is tremendous, Jeff. And it's, you know, you've got uh, JYD, you've got Ted DiBiase, and you've got Terry Gordy and Buddy Jack Roberts doing the heavy lifting. Hayes on the outside. But, you know, Hayes was one of those guys. And, uh, I know, speaking of the aforementioned John McAdam, he had a hot take a few weeks ago, and he said, I don't get it. I don't understand why everybody thinks Hayes was the weak link. You know, I think his work holds up. His work's not going to hold up to Gordy, but I think maybe the case in point, his his work holds up to Buddy Jack Roberts. Obviously, Bill Watts didn't think so. so. Yeah, and that's exactly why he, he brought yes. in Buddy, because he exactly. didn't think Michael's work was holding up. Yeah, but it's at the same time, Michael's strength wasn't his actual wrestling it was his antagonist antagonizing the crowd and well and, and you know great and, at it in know? fairness to to michael you know there were all kind of tag teams that had one guy that was the the glue the solid hand that was doing all the as you said heavy lifting in the ring and then you had one guy that was the personality of the team think about adonis and ventura 
Ventura was the personality of the team, and Adonis was the guy in the ring that was bust. I mean, I'm not to say that Adonis wasn't a great, you know, talker himself, but you know, the act was was a lot on Jesse uh, and his personality. And then Adrian was a tremendous worker, and you know, you had guys like uh, you had teams like that all over the place. Uh, that one guy was the uh, the personality, and the other guy was the one doing all the heavy lifting in the ring. Yeah, look, it makes sense too, and you, I think you can go through a lot of tag teams and a lot of partnerships and there are clearly defined roles of who was stronger where but with that too this is such an important angle and it's this set the tone for uh, a freebirds and DiBiase feud which lasted years and Terry Gordy and DiBiase which lasted years 5 you, plus years that's I mean, huge that's crazy I mean, when does that ever that. occur and yeah. and if it happens now and let's say the WWE it's because they're just recycling and rehashing. It's not because these angles are, you know, the fans want to see this shit. This is just a way that they can recycle and rehash a lot of this stuff. So I'll tell you the real surprise here. First off, the pile driver from Terry Gordy is fantastic. He was always great at that. But at the very end of the match, Tommy Rich gets in the ring. And look, a lot has been made about Tommy Rich over the last uh, 40 years. How did Tommy Rich get the NWA title? He was never good enough to get it. He must have been doing something. And I'll tell you what, if those stories aren't fair, if they aren't true, they're not fair to Tommy Rich, that he had to perform some sort of service to get uh, the NWA title. But at the same time, Tommy gets in the ring, puts Gordy in the corner and starts laying in rights. Tommy Rich's fucking punches were spot on. I mean, I don't know. Did you did you catch that? Oh, no. You know, let me tell you something. For people that think that's the only reason he got the world title, Tommy Rich was so fucking over. Yes. Uh, you know, n- not just uh, in Georgia, too. He was over. Let, let's remember. Uh, let's go on our way back machine here with Uncle Booker. Let's remember the story that Terry Funk told me that he knew it was time to tell uh, to sell the uh, Amarillo territory when Tommy Rich came in for us, you know, for a spot show or for a spot appearance. And all the girls ran past Terry Funk, who had been the hero of the promotion for 10 plus years. And they all ran to Terry uh, to see Tommy Rich because Tommy Rich was on, uh, you know, network or the TBS that went all over the world. So he was the big star all of a sudden. And, you know, there's legitimate reasons why, you know, Terry Funk realized that Tommy Rich was now a national star. He was a national star. And did he deserve a long run with the NWA title that had, you know, uh, historically gone to great workers? No. Did he deserve a short-term shot with the title? I have no problem with that. So let me ask you this. Talking about who was over at that point, could you say that in a way, and this may seem sacrilegious to some people, did Tommy Rich deserve his spot with a short-term run with the title more than Dusty did? No. The only thing I would say with that, I would say the answer is no. And I'll tell you, Tommy Rich was as over in Georgia as probably anybody was in any territory, right? So whether it's Dusty in Florida, Jerry Lawler in Memphis, whatever it might be, Tommy Rich is right there. The difference between Dusty and Terry, at least in my opinion, Dusty was worldwide. Tom, I'm sorry, I said Terry. Tommy wasn't. But Tommy if, was Tommy, if Tommy Rich had shown up in 1980 or 1981 in the WWF, would Tommy Rich have gotten the sort of reaction? And all credit to Dusty. Dusty got huge reactions when he went to Madison Square Garden, but he was going there regularly. This is not like, you know, and if Tommy Rich was doing that kind of thing where he would show up for the Madison Square Garden shows, maybe work a TV taping or two, 
you know, uh, and gotten his personality over. And I realized part of his charm was the, the whole Southern boy thing. And, you know, maybe that wouldn't have played up in New York. I don't know. But, you know, people that just shit on Tommy Rich and say, oh, he shouldn't have got the world title because he wasn't as good as Harley Race or Jack Briscoe. No, he wasn't. But what he was was somebody that put asses in the seats because he was super over. Well, look at it this way. Uh, does Did Giant Baba in 1975 deserve the world title based off of his in-ring work? The answer would be no, though Baba was much better in 75 than he was in 85, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no. No, but yeah, but exactly. He's Baba was never an elite worker by any means, but he was huge, and it gave his promotion credibility, and this is what they did, and uh, – Look, th- this is something that that happened, whether it was Dusty Rhodes, whether it was Giant Baba, whether it was Tommy Rich. And there are others out there that, you know, for whatever reason, we're forgetting it gave them the rub uh, and it popped houses. And that that's really what the goal was. Anyway, back to the angle. Angle is fantastic. Uh, everybody does a great job. Even JYD, JYD, who also looks good, decent in the ring here. Does yes. this in, and he does, he does, right? And yep. he does this impassioned uh, promo a little later where his eyes are bugging out of his head and he's kind of lit up and screaming and he's, he's not just doing the dog bark or, you know, that whole thing. He's actually seems like he's legitimately pissed and wants to kick somebody's ass. Well, this and he is, has, he has a great quote where he says, you know, uh, he, and he references, and I thought this was very effective. He references what had happened in Mid-South. You know, he references the fact that I've had trouble with these guys uh, before, and every time I get a partner and I face these guys, my partner gets hurt. He references Buck Robley, and I thought that was really, really cool, uh, a way of of helping accentuate and get over the angle. Yeah, it absolutely, too. And, uh, you know, again, I I think Tommy Rich, I think he is, uh, I I think, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people remember him from his 1988 stint in uh, WCW or whatever it was called at that stage. He showed up, I'll say, 40 pounds overweight. I think he made his debut challenging Lex Luger for the U.S. title on a pay-per-view or some sort of clash of champions, something like that. And he just wasn't, he was overweight, slower. He wasn't to say Tommy Rich. The late 70s, early 80s, Tommy Rich, house of fire. Uh, You know, I'll tell you, when we had the uh, the dinners in South Florida that I went to, Tommy Rich was one of our best guests, you know, guy that was fun, full of personality, uh, you know, told great stories and was an interesting guy. But admittedly, Tommy, uh, during portions of the 80s and past that, eh, succumbed to a few demons uh, for some uh, for, for a while there. And it, it certainly affected his appearance. It affected his work. But, you know. Uh, when Tommy Rich was, uh, you know, like he is here, when he was looked to be in shape, uh, you know, I mean, did he have washboard, uh, wa- washboard, uh, washboard abs? <laughs> no, but he looked like he was in shape, and that's right. you know, and that's part of what made him such a little heartthrob to all the girls and stuff like that. Now, let me. Uh, are you done, or you got more to say about the? Oh, uh, I'm done. That's okay, it. so I made some note on here. First of all, who's the announcer? Gordon identifies him as Steve Borders. I'm like, who the fuck is Steve Borders? I literally have never seen this guy before. I'm used to Freddie Miller or the guy, his name was Jay something that had the beard and the glasses. Remember who I'm talking about? Yeah, but it, it was it was almost always Gordon or Freddie Miller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so anyway, uh, I noted that if you think about it, the time frame that this happened, 
Barry, Terry Gordy was like 20 years old. Right. And Michael Hayes was maybe 23. I mean, it's just amazing. And you understand why guys that were this electric, that were so effective in the ring, why Bill Watts would have brought Buddy Robertson, a guy that, you know, was known to be a really steady hand in the ring, uh, a guy that these, you know, guy, young guys could learn from. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, you know, they, they had their whole little sort of uh, weird trio, uh, you know, uh, famously, I've heard stories about how when the Freebirds, you know, let you in uh, as a you know friend of theirs, they, they would do this bit where they would piss on you. That's oh, like, okay. That's no, I've heard those stories. I've you know, actually that, heard that too. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's like one of their weird things they did. And, you know, uh, I quite frankly, wouldn't want to be friends with the Freebirds that bad, but you know, whatever. Let's see. Hayes working essentially as a cheerleader at ringside is just a house of fire. I mean, he is, he's not one of these guys and Barry, you and I know guys like this who sit at ringside on their hands and don't do anything. This guy is bouncing around whether he was uh, perhaps under the influence of some stimulants. I don't know, but it would certainly uh, not be out of the question because he was on fire at ringside. Uh, let's see. Um, I thought that, you know, for TV, usually these kind of matches, they maybe go a minute and a half and then there's some kind of run in and there's a schmoz and it's over. This match goes over 10 minutes. So like you said, you got a chance to see JYD go in and work and he didn't, he didn't, you know, ashamed himself or anything like that. DiBiase looked great. Gordy looked great. Roberts, everybody looks great. It's a strong match for television in 1981. Now, when they get to the angles, it's funny, Barry. I was thinking to myself how history sometimes makes you remember things incorrectly because I thought these were five pile drivers that took place on the floor. Right. Uh, and there was only one on the floor, and it was absolutely sold correctly as being devastating. But DiBiase, after the pile drive on the floor, rolls back into the ring. The second watch. If you watch this uh, match in the angle, watch the second pile driver that he gives him inside the ring that Gordy gives DiBiase. Because I literally, in 40 years after the angle, when I saw the second pile driver, I went, holy shit. Because it just looks like he absolutely kills DiBiase. Yeah, and also what's great is eventually Tommy Rich comes in, throws a towel in. Uh, oh, and let me point out, while he's doing this, the fans are losing their shit. And there is one female fan at ringside that as she as Gordy keeps giving DiBiase the pile drivers, she begins screaming in absolute terror. And you can hear it above everything that's happening in the ring because she is literally afraid for Ted DiBiase and what's happening to him. And wow, it's just those days are long since past, uh, Barry, but it was so effectively done. Uh, you know, um, as he's you know, getting a pile driver and he keeps kicking out. Gordon says he's absolutely unbelievable that, that he's able to kick out of this. And Gordon can't believe it. Uh, Tommy Rich throws in the towel. There's a, a little scuffle in the ring before the Freebirds get out of there. The guys come in and here's one of these things that is so great uh, about Gordon Soli. You know, Gordon, we've talked about, you know, Gordon and Lance, who was the better one, uh, you know, and they were selling, let's be honest, two completely different products, really. Gordon was selling something that was realistic while Lance was selling something that was could be realistic, but also had its cartoonish elements. And I don't mean that in any negative way because Memphis was what it was and, and I loved it. But 
you know, Gordon was selling something that was, you know, the way that Eddie Graham wanted it presented was essentially just shy of a shoot, you know. Uh, but here, Gordon is like, uh, uh, gentlemen, he is hemorrhaging. Do not move him. Because, he, you know, you could do serious damage. And then he talks about they're coming. You know, let's get an ambulance, please. And then after the uh, paramedics show up, he's talking about how they put him on. You know, they're, they're doing a back brace to support him. Uh, and then I love this line by Gordon. I've noticed that one leg looks considerably shorter <laughs> as if the spine may have been jammed. Apparently, Barry, when your That's spine great. gets jammed, one leg ends up being shorter. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's all also, it's- at least according to Dr. Soley, which I, it was just awesome the way he did it. Uh, you know, uh, let's see. Uh, then Tommy Rich comes out and he does a, he does an interview, Gordon, uh, Gordon Barry, that apparently I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably would not have been considered politically correct now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He says, Michael Hayes ain't nothing but a sissy. That's right. And that's right. I, I yeah. like went, ooh, yeah. Damn. Tony Khan probably would not go for that comment. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Tommy Rich extends his hand to JYD and he says, I want to be your partner to face these three birds. Now, I got to tell you, very subtle thing. I like the fact that JYD initially did not shake his hand. He said, you know, that's where he, he discussed and said, you know, uh, guys that I've been partners with before against the Freebirds always end up hurt, and I don't want to take responsibility for that. And then Tommy Rich says, no, no, you know, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be your partner. And JYD finally shakes his hand, at which point Gordon Sully, the booker, says, well, then as far as I'm concerned, the match is made. Uh, you know, apparently the booker did not have a say in this. Gordon had decided the match was going to be made, and by God, uh, you know, uh, he says that's a, it's official. Uh uh, so uh, anyway, and, and as you mentioned, JYD on these on this promo right after the angle was absolutely man. He was l just lit on fire. And then uh, Hayes coming back afterwards, and of course Gordon registering his disgust for the whole situation. And Hayes with this quote, he says, "You say that I don't play with a full deck. Well, that's right. I play with a stack deck, which I thought was a great line there. And then so you know the whole greatness of this angle was accentuated by the fact. Uh, and Ted DiBiase, when I had dinner with him, discussed this. They put him in a hospital for five days legitimately to sell the angle. How awesome is that, Barry? And that is that that is so key. And what you know, what Florida and I was funny. I was looking at photos recently, and uh, Steve Kern broke his leg in a match legitimately. It was 1978, and they wound up turning it into an angle that it uh, he had been jumped by. I think it was uh, Pac Song. It was like Pac Song and Eric the Red and Sonny King. Eric the Red died. If Sonny you're King, wrong, Bob McKeon will notify you. He will. He will. And as it turns out, uh, Sonny King had left the state, but Pac Song was still around. So they turned it into an angle, and Kern would come back and get his revenge months later. But what they did is they filmed Steve Kern in the hospital going through his surgery. He had to have surgery on his ankle. Then they showed him in rehab all playing it up like this was all part of a wrestling angle. So it wasn't uncommon. Even Mr. Wrestling 2, if I'm correct, I think Georgia did it. He was attacked. I think it was Professor Tanaka, and they kept him in the hospital for several days, had him in traction, still wearing his wrestling mask, though. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yep. you know, but but I was as I was watching the angle where the paramedics were coming and uh, very gingerly, they were putting Ted DiBiase on the backboard, and then they were carrying him out of the ring. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, eh, what are these paramedics thinking? You know, like, wait, where are we going on our call? The TBS studios, a wrestler was pile driven. What? 
And then they come, they pick up, and they bring the guy to the hospital. Now, I don't know whether, like, Jim Barnett had, uh, you know, placed a phone call to the administrator of the hospital and said, uh-huh, yeah, listen, uh, we're going to have this guy come into the hospital. Because at some point, if they're treating it like it's a shoot, somebody's going to do an X-ray or some kind of test, on, the, and they're going to go, uh, yeah, Mr. DiBiase, we can't find anything wrong with you. What's the deal here? <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, exactly. of course, Ted at this point is not going to go, uh, Doc, yeah, it's all big work. i got to stay in the hospital for a few days. And reportedly, the the switchboard at the hospital was absolutely just driven out of their minds by all the calls they got from people from all over the country wanting to know how Ted DiBiase was. It was absolutely crazy. And so he he's in the hospital for five days selling the angle. And, you know, you mentioned uh, how they went in with the film crew to see Steve Kern. They did the same thing with DiBiase. They had the film crew go in. I think it was Steve Kern or maybe Steve O that went in to visit their good friend, Ted DiBiase. And, you know, he's in the, you know, the neck roll and he's like, hey, yes, I'm going to come and uh, get my revenge. on yeah, It was just, you know, he's going to get his revenge on the Freebirds, and it was just so awesome. And, you know, Barry, there is a reason why this angle was one of my top 20 of the uh, the 80s, because it was absolutely fantastic. I I would say this is a top 10 angle of the 80s. And, I, and I'm not, I, this is not an angle, and I'll always exclude the WWE and probably shouldn't, but that was always pre- pre- uh, presented to me, you know, not easy for me to say, but presented as entertainment. And when this angle took place prior to the expansion, obviously, this was legitimate. Like you watch this. And as you just said, holy shit, look at those pile drivers. Look at the way he's killing him. Like this is legit. That's how we viewed the old angles in the territory days. This is top 10, in my opinion. Well, you know, the only reason I was it's, it's sort of like the angle with DiBiase, Flair and Murdoch execution wise. Absolutely top notch. But if what you're going to base on the greatness of an angle is how it registered at the box office, you know, the Murdoch uh, and DiBiase thing, while they had some great matches, including one that was in my top 100, it didn't mean a lot at the box office. I don't know that this angle with DiBiase, as long as it uh, went on, it was tremendous. But this didn't have the sort of impact at the box office that, say, the angle with the uh, with the Freebirds and the Von Erichs did, which completely lit that territory on fire because, you know, famously there was the story uh, about how uh, Ted DiBiase went up to St. Louis and Sam Muchnick said, how are things going? He said, well, Sam, if you must know in Atlanta, it's the shits because our houses are poor. And perhaps maybe that's something that we could discuss at the next CWF Legends Fan Fest in Lutz, oh. Florida, November. Because aren't we having a guest there that might be able to discuss this angle that was in the Georgia territory at the time, perhaps even as one of the bookers. Let's see who we got, Jeff. We've got Magnum TA Terry Allen is our he was, headliner. He, he was not a booker there. Not a booker there. Bill Apter. Now, Bill Apter was really tied into the Georgia and Florida promotions, but wasn't booking, right? Nope. Mm, could it be the third guest that we announced? Could it be Robert Fuller? Maybe, maybe that's who I'm talking about. And maybe Robert could discuss his time booking in the Atlanta territory and uh, the angles that uh, came out of this and uh, some other stuff with the free birds. And so uh, when is that date again, Barry, since you can now uh, mention it here on the air? Absolutely. That will be November the 5th. Obviously, tickets are available. We have three talents uh, that we have announced. We have a fourth talent that we'll be announcing probably within the next day. Actually, right after this episode drops uh, in just a few hours. And then we have two other talents that we're just hoping to wrap up negotiations. 
November the 5th, 2022. High level negotiations, Barry? Well, it really comes down to how much beer will be in the mini fridge okay. uh, at the hotel. So if we can make that happen, these two other talents will be there. I'm pretty confident that they'll be there. But uh, very excited for this one, Jeff, as you know. Wasn't at my optimum best on a health perspective during the last one. Feel like I missed out. Still a little bummed about that or a lot bummed about it, but really looking forward to getting down, partying with our peeps, as the kids would say, Jeff. Okay. Well, you're nothing if not topical. Oh, yeah. Uh, Last thing I want to discuss wrestling-wise, Barry, a question popped up on the old Twitter feed by friend of the show, Sean Waltman, uh, and I thought it would make for a good discussion topic. Barry, the question was asked by Sean Waltman, did Jack Briscoe ever appear as Uvalde Slim? Could you address that? Yeah, so the answer was yes, too, and uh, you and I briefly discussed this off-air. Kayfabe, Barry, kayfabe. All right, I'm sorry. So part of uh, the angle of Uvalde Slim, and generally whenever there was a baby face that was wearing a mask, and, uh, you know, to think of, uh, I'm trying to think, it certainly I can pull up Juan Cena a few years ago, everybody and their mother knew was John Cena. So when they did Uvalde Slim in Florida, everybody knew who Uvalde Slim, you're not hiding Dusty, he had the big splotch on his belly. Clearly, you mean, this you mean everybody didn't know who the giant machine was? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Everybody knows who they are. But part of it, uh, when they work the angle, is they would have other guys step into the role. And look, Jack Briscoe, there was no way Jack Briscoe was going to don a mask. He was still wearing the same boots. And Jack had very specific boots. They were black mid-calf boots. And then he wore plain trunks. Jack was not a flashy guy. He was a very plain and he would still wear that, still had the Jack Briscoe physique, which was also very identifiable, but he would do it. And a lot of times you would see this. And I should say, I believe this only happened two or three times. Max, a lot of times actually out there on YouTube, believe it or not, it popped up on my YouTube. Is it really Tampa? Was it the TV or an arena? Uh, No, it was in the arena. It was a match he had with Dick Slater. Okay. Uh, and Uvalde Slim was accompanied by uh, the rooster, uh, Oliver Humperdinck. And uh, Dick Slater was accompanied by his lordship, the original his lordship, Alfred Hayes. So that would have been 1980 yes. uh, when that occurred. And uh, and a lot of times this was done whether Jack Briscoe was teaming with Dusty or Dusty had to be put into a cage or something like that uh, is where. But again, th- this wasn't one of those deals where there there wasn't one person in that building who didn't know who was underneath the mask. But it did happen more than once. I will say it happened two or three times easy. Barry, it's always time for a little good time for a little food talk with you. I know you love talking food, Barry, almost as much as wrestling. Oh, I love it. I lo- I'd rather talk about food than wrestling just about any day of the week. Sean McIver, we should uh, wish Sean the very best. Sean is currently fighting COVID, feels crappy, is home, but he shared with me a great restaurant story. And it was based off of our food talk that we talked about last week. Sean telling me how much he loves the food talk. So I know I love it. You love it. Sean loves it. That's all we need, Jeff. Okay, Barry, we're going to do this story for Sean McIver. Did you notice the way I glommed onto your uh, thing there? That's a good Barry, I saw this article recently, and it led me to a question that I wanted to ask you about your days when you were a server or manager. manager. Yes. You spiker. So I saw this story, the headline reading, server accused of filling in own tip 
said the restaurant sided with a customer. Boy, I hate when the restaurant sides with a customer, Barry. Uh, this was on a TikTok video, which I can assure you <laughs> I don't follow. So, Barry, according to the article, what happened was uh, there was a server who had uh, was shocked because, uh, let's see here, uh, posted on social media, says now viral clip. She was shocked after receiving such a large gratuity from the customer, which she says was over $100. Okay. After the fact, however, the customer called and said they wanted to leave $20, not $100. Ah. So the man was then accused of charging or changing the tip. I'm sorry. Let me let me correct that. Uh, I, I, it's Her name is Mar, uh, and I thought it said man. Mar was then accused of changing the tip herself in order to slide some more money into her pocket. And even though she said that she would cover the difference of the tip to make up for the mistake, guess what happened, Barry? Fired by the restaurant. So my question to you, Barry, is in your days as either a server or manager, did you ever know someone who worked as a server who altered their tip? Sure. And that actually uh, fairly frequent. And I, I think anybody that spent any amount of time in a restaurant, whether you're a server or a manager or whatever you're doing, if you're spending at least a year in a restaurant, there is somebody doing that. This is a frequent thing. The three can become an eight. You know, a one can become a seven. This was extremely common. And what you would find is that if if somebody looked at their tip, and this is not to say all servers, obviously not, but if you've got somebody who's a little unscrupulous, they could look at it and they would actually say, you know what, I can make that one a seven. And they would go ahead and do that, and then they would quit. They might quit. They might have already have another job, something like that. So uh, we did, and we generally saw this with employees that that were leaving, uh, whether they quit a week, because you wouldn't find out. Phone calls different, right? But a lot of times you get something called a chargeback, which means the customer gets the charge, disputes it, and then the restaurant gets notified. And that doesn't happen overnight. So you would find that that would happen. But there, there were, look, there were servers that would alter and, uh, and then we would catch it the next day or two days later. So extremely common actually with that. And there's a lot of, a lot of different scams that people would do when it comes to their tips and all that shit. So yeah, pretty common, Jeff. Okay. So this leads me to two questions. First of all, as a former manager, would you recommend to customers who are going to a restaurant to always receive a copy of the receipt. I would. So I, I, I would, you know, look, nobody wants to be scammed in any form. And for the most part, sure. it, this is not going to happen to you at the same time, you know, and I look, I've learned just from my charges and it's not even restaurants. It's anything I'm charging. I don't always remember what I've charged. I'm not always. Now, again, if I had gone to, let's say, Mission Barbecue, or that's not a good example, but if I had gone to a restaurant, maybe like a Chili's or so, that's not a good example either because I wouldn't go to Chili's. But let's say it's a fan, <laughs> right? Let's say it's Look a fan. Look at family. you, Mr. Snooty. <laughs> I know, Mr. Snob over here. But let's say I go to a place and, uh, and my bill is 40 bucks, and that's why I'm pulling out a Chili's. I know that I'm not leaving a $70 tip at Chili's, sure. right? So that should immediately populate where I would go. That doesn't make sense to me. But let's say I go to a nicer restaurant, as I did this past weekend, and and maybe I'm leaving a heftier tip. I may not notice it quite as much. With that being said, again, this happens all the time. It's frequent. And I have seen, I have caught restaurant managers working. This is, I mean, I have caught restaurant managers working with a server to steal tips. 
So that was something that uh, happened to me 15, 16 years ago, where uh, one of my assistant managers was actually working with a manager in cahoots. And, and, and what made that interesting, Jeff, every manager has a specific duty, right? I'm the GM. You said of duty. I know. I, even I was going to laugh at that. <laughs> all managers have a duty. Yeah. You never, that shit never gets too old, literally. But uh, like I was the GM, but then I had a bar manager. I had a service manager. I had a manager that was in charge of chargebacks from credit cards. That same manager was working hand in hand with a specific server to steal tips and to steal it from the customers. So it wasn't so easy for me to catch it until evidence mounted and then we were able to do it. Okay, so a couple more questions. Is it more likely to happen at a chain restaurant, a higher end restaurant, or you don't think it matters? Well, the answer to that, I think, would be both. So where it's not going to happen is some is at a place where, and look, it still could happen, but it's less likely to happen at a place where the check average per guest is going to be low. So, you know, I go to this Mexican restaurant. You were there, El Limon in Ambler. Course, yes. Yeah. El Limon's like 10 bucks per person. So, you know, what are you going to steal off that? A dollar or two dollars, which also happens, you know, because people don't notice it. But you know, it, most people are going to go for a higher check average because it's going to be less likely to catch a large restaurant because, you know, 400 seats, it's going to be a little more difficult and you're going to have to do a little more work. I think a smaller mom and pop would be the last place that's going to happen, though it still does happen. I think a larger, more fine dining atmosphere based off of higher check average and more seats, you know, again, 420 seats. How many how many guests are charging through the course of seven days if you're if you have 420 seats? Thousands are right. So it's going to be a little more difficult to to snoop all this out. And what what about if you have a large party? Is it easier to do it with a larger party? Absolutely, because again, okay. your check average is going to be high. So it's yeah. going to be a large party, and you know you can just slip that extra hundred or fifty, whatever it is, right in there. So if you're doing that, would you, as a former manager, recommend that the person bring with them? You know, if you're, if you're going, like, let's say you have a party of 10, okay, and you know you're going to put it on the card, uh, you're paying for the entire group, and you want to try to protect yourself, is it worth your time to take out cash so that you can give cash to the server, uh, you know, in lieu of putting the tip for a large party? on a uh, on a credit card. Yeah, I mean certainly there are ways to circumvent getting screwed through your charge. So I would say sure that's a good way, but with that who really wants to stop off at their bank because if you No, don't and to, I get that. I'm just talking yeah. about ways to protect yourself. Oh, absolutely. Look, if you're paying cash with something and you're but the here's the here's the thing with cash is cash sometimes disappears from the time you get up from the table till the time the server, you know, gets the cash. So if I was doing that, I would put the cash in the checkbook and make sure the checkbook is in, in the server's hands. And I would thank them very much. Very always fun to talk a little Florida man or not. Are you sitting down and prepared? Well, well prepared, you're sitting you're sitting down. Yeah, let's be honest, right? Yeah. Prepared, no, not quite as much, but sitting All down. All right. Our yeah. first headline, Barry. Man tells police he lit home on fire because, quote, spirits, unquote, told him to. <clears throat> Here we go, Barry. A man was arrested 
On May 3rd for arson at his home, when he told authorities the reason he lit the home on fire was because spirits had told him to, according to police. Thon Ha, that's no tip off, by the way, Barry, his name was caught on, yeah, I I love when you (laughs) thon your ha, uh, was caught on surveillance video approaching a home under construction on May 3rd. He locked his bike to a stop sign. It's always nice when you practice good bicycle safety before you commit an arson. Oh, yeah. Uh, He entered the home, tried to cover his face with his clothing, clothing. Minutes later, he was filmed fleeing the home, unlocking his bike, and speeding away. He's going to make a quick getaway unlocking his bike. You know, it takes the time to stop and unlock his bike because he did it. Uh, Documents state that uh, he was identified by the prospective buyers of the home. When questioned by police, he admitted to starting the fire, quote, because spirits told him to bury Florida man or not. No, this this wouldn't be Florida, though. It certainly, as I often say, it could be Florida. But no, this is uh, this took place in somewhere out in California, Jeff. St. Petersburg, Florida, Billy. I know you hate it when you're wrong, but my friend. You were wrong. I was. Barry, our next story coming to us as I pull it up here very quickly. The headline, man charged after throwing a hot dog at a police officer. Police arrested and charged a man for allegedly throwing a hot dog at a police officer who was warning him that he was violating an ordinance. NBC affiliate reports the incident took place Saturday when officers attempted to stop 47-year-old Jason Stahl from selling hot dogs after his midnight street closure permit had ended. Stahl continued selling the hot dogs, according to the arrest report, and became upset with officers before throwing one hot dog at an officer in full unit. By God, Richard Dawson would not put up with this crap, Barry. That's for sure. Yeah. Which Richard? Which one? The the TV or the cop? Probably neither. neither but, you know, the, the one that used to host Family Feud is no longer with us, so he probably wouldn't object as much. Barry, That's true. Florida man or not. <sighs> So on that note, I believe Richard Dawson, the cop, is retired from being a cop. But uh, yeah, but not not Dan Farron just retired from being a security officer. Shout out to you, Dan. Congrats. Did he? Oh, I wasn't aware. Congrats to both. Apparently you don't care about Dan and you're not reading his Facebook uh, page. But, you know, well, when we hang up, when we're done recording today, immediately I'm going to go through the last four years. Well, Dan if you Ferentz. don't, Mary Lou's going to have something to say to you, my friend. <laughs> and I live in fear of Mary Lou, so it all makes <laughs> As sense. we all do, of course. Of course, of course. This story, no, this story, this took place in, uh, this is somewhere in, in the Midwest. Where we recently, uh, you and I, in a private conversation, I believe, uh, discussed private. Newport Ritchie <laughs> Jeez. in Pinellas County. Oh, Barry, yes, the good folks in Newport. Throwing hot dogs at the cop. Throwing caution to the wind. Ugh. Was this the story you were telling me about the other day? That because with Newport Richie. No, no, tied no, no. That it? was a that was a YouTube travel video that I watched. Oh, okay. Describing, uh, I believe it was Florida's trashiest city, and somehow the guy had determined that Newport Richie was uh, that in fact winner. Uh, next, Barry crutch swinging mom attacks, comma spits at officers after her son's traffic stop. I hate when that happens. Mom attacked and spat at mul- spat at multiple officers, oh, striking one with a crutch and punching another in the face. After police pulled her over, her, her son for having a suspended driver's license, Melinda Medina faces a string of charges following Monday's altercations on the turnpike and in a hospital. Officers had pulled over her son, a 20-year-old man, 
for having a suspended license and driving a vehicle with an expired state inspection sticker. Always good, Barry. I've pointed this out before. When you got a suspended license to be driving with some sort of tag or inspection violation that is just going to draw the cops to you, you know, like bees to honey. At some point during the stop, Medina arrived at the scene and became aggressive towards officers. She sped at the officers and used a crutch. She was walking. So she's walking with a crutch, Barry. That doesn't stop her. No, by God, she's going to still swing at the cops. She was taken to custody. She's, uh, police said she remained violent and combative while in custody at the hospital, punched an officer in the face and damaged the body-worn camera. Now they're going to be pissed off, Barry. She damaged that body-worn camera. Officers uh, suffered injuries trying to arrest her. She was charged with assault, criminal possession of a weapon, criminal mischief, obstructing governmental in administration, and three counts of a harassment. Barry Rose, Florida woman or not? This is a Florida story. This this taking place somewhere in a, a smaller town in Florida. Like Newport Ritchie? <laughs> well, yeah, it is. <laughs> this is. I'll say this is Florida. Wrong, Barry! Man, I'm We are talking, this as one. it's pronounced up there, Long Island, New York. So, you know, Richard Dawson might have known some of these officers. I'm not sure, Barry. Yeah, I uh, boy, I tanked this one horrible. Didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I I am reveling in your tanking here. Oh man, just wrap this shit up. I this was that this is my worst outing maybe ever. Yeah, Barry, uh, th- great stories kind of, though. This great headline stories. that people like to see here. Naked man ties up traffic on the highway. All right, so Barry, uh, I don't know if you've uh, when we reveal where the uh, story took place uh, in whatever part of the country or world. Uh, I'm going to have to find out if Barry Rose has been on, on some sort of holiday recently. He uh, held up traffic on Thursday after walking on the side of a busy highway and climbing on a tractor trailer naked. Facebook users began posting about the incident on Thursday, reporting the nude man was spotted in the southbound lanes. Deputies dispatched the area, took the man into protect, protective custody, excuse me, without incident, bring him to a nearby hospital, shockingly, Barry, for a mental health evaluation. Barry. Florida man or not? Oh, naked guy, probably under the influence. No, no. It is no. summer, so it could be warm anywhere. At this stage, I'm 0 for 3. Can I go 0 for 4? Or do I just start saying, yeah, they're all Florida? This just took place, and this is central Florida. It gets 120 in the summer. It's hot as shit. No breeze. He's crazy. This took place. This is a Florida story. Sarasota, Florida. There we go. Let's give Barry a round of applause. Finally. Finally got one fucking right. Yeah. Next story, Barry. The headline, by the way, I want to thank our friends at the Obtuse Angles podcast for uh, steering me towards this one. Absolutely. Barry, the headline. How to murder your husband writer found guilty of murdering her husband. Now, I will say that I have told people that have sent me links to stories before, I do not like stories uh, uh, and will not read stories that involve someone's death. However, there's kind of an angle to this story, Barry. The woman in question had written a book. Oh, let's see. uh, Let's see. Before I read you the full story, it was about 10, 12 years ago. I'm sorry, 2011. She wrote a story called How to Murder Your Husband. Well, she was married, of course. And then, of course, she was found guilty of, in fact, stay with me, Barry, murdering her husband. I thought that was a little bit unusual. So, uh, Barry, the story goes, 
A jury has convicted a self-published romance. Uh, she's a romance novel. Oh, sure she is. Yes. Who wrote an essay titled How to Murder Your Husband of Fatally Shooting Her Husband. Uh, let's see, 12-person jury uh, found guilty of second-degree murder on Wednesday after deliberating for two days over Daniel Brophy's death, according to reports. Uh, her husband was killed on uh, in June of 2018 as he prepared to work at a culinary incident. He was going to be a chef, and she killed him, Barry. Oh, that's terrible. The woman showed no visible reaction to the verdict in the crowded county courtroom. One of her lawyers said the defense team would appeal the decision, Barry, Florida woman or not. Another tough one right there. So Any of these stories, let's be honest, could be Florida. Oh, absolutely, too. So her husband was going to be a chef. So conventional logic would say they're younger. Uh, I mean, unless it's, you know, if you're 70 and decide, you know, at the end of your life, yeah, I'm going to become a chef now. It's so conventional wisdom would say that they're younger. They are uh, shit. I'm going to say not Florida with this one. But as you just said, Jeff, of course, it could be Florida. Uh, Barry, first of all, let me point out that the uh, defendant was 71. Her husband at the time of his death, 63. So apparently, you know, fucking nothing about the world of food and uh, culinary institutes. Yeah. However, yeah. the story took place very in Portland, Oregon. All right. I got that right. At least. Oh, yes. We'll give you credit for that. So who now, starts a career change in a completely different direction at 63, though? Well, some of us start career changes at the age of 60. And well, that's true. In okay. their 50s. Yeah. I'm just going <laughs> to say. Uh, right. Very next headline. Man gets insurance payout after centipede bites his testicles oh. while he sleeps. Ooh, Barry, this. Let's not even think about that. The story goes, Barry, that the unfortunate man, uh, the man was who had decided to strip off and have a nap on his floor after a hard day's cleaning, woke up to find a monster centipede had latched onto his testicles. I hate when that happens. Oh, uh, let's see. He explained to reporters he was woken up by the sharp pain. It's never good, Barry, when you have a sharp pain in your groin or groinal region. Quickly realized the arthropod by the way barry i think that is the first time in almost 250 episodes we've ever used the word arthropod so congrats to us had sunk its mandibles and mandibles we uh, well we've talked about the mandible claw so i don't know about that into his scrotum barry are you are you genuflecting at this point and going ooh, ow oh whenever i hear anything whether it's uh you know anything snipping in near your genitals sharp yes, objects yes. I, I'm always like that, yes. You're, you're going to love the quote from this genius, by the way, Barry. He said, I was shocked and initially wanted to slam a book down upon it. But I quickly realized why I should not do it. Yes, he's a genius. Barry, Florida man or not? Uh, it's a caterpillar. It's a centipede. It's This, this would be Florida. Uh, this will be Florida, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah this will be Florida. Taiwan, Barry, because we wow, anywhere for a story. Guy in Taiwan gets a centipede on the on the scrote, and yeah, that's uh, that's not good. So uh, anyway, next story, Barry. We love a good dog story, don't we, Bear? Do, oh, it, as long as it's a good dog story, we do. Well, no, no, and, and of course, you know, I would never give yes. you a bad dog story. This is a good one, so I wanted to share it with you. Family reunited with dog after it went missing eight years ago. The story reads, a dog and his owner had been reunited after being separated for more than eight years. The Han family says their dog, Harley, good name for a dog, went missing from their home in February of 2014. 
The owner told the news station, I turned them to, out to go to the bathroom, turned my back for a second. They went off into the woods and we went looking and never found Harley. We searched and cruised and looked and put up posters, sent out the wanted, missing pet, just never stopped looking for him. The family then relocated to, and I will tell you where they relocated to. This is not the origin of the story, Barry. Uh, they relocated to Missouri, the show me state shit out to our listeners from uh, Missouri. We're shocked to learn that Harley, who was microchipped, was found last weekend. They then drove over 1,100 miles to pick up Harley, Barry, Florida dog or not. A happy ending for Harley. Thank God. You know what? Dogs deserve happy endings. Yes. Yeah. You and I deserve happy endings. Perhaps we, not do. Often we do. We do. This this would not be Florida. This is somewhere out west. Fort Myers. Fucking Florida. shit. I <laughs> is that Mark Russ country or is that uh, Ben, ben and Kelly country? What was it again? What town? Fort, Fort Myers? Myers. So funny joke with this one. That's actually we'll be the judge of whether this is funny, Mister. Well, anybody at the last CWF Fan Fest will. This is the home of the Hall of Fame guy. That was occurring. Oh in... yes, yes, I know who you're talking about now. Yes, you do. <laughs> that guy, yeah. So. Anyway, uh, next, Barry, I, I want to give a shout out to our friend David Edelman. David uh, sends us, uh, David and Mark Black, regular uh, senders of great stories to me. So uh, thank you uh, to uh, Mark and David for this. And this one's from David. Barry, the headline reads, indecent exposure case reported by woman visiting grave at cemetery. That's, that's a little strange, Barry. A bizarre case of indecent it's exposure. Just a little strange, Jeff. Under just investigation. <laughs> After a mourner visiting a grave was confronted by a man, quote, with his pants down to his ankles. It happened on Saturday, July 2nd. Uh, let's see. The sheriff's office reported the, vic uh, the victim advised she had visited the gravesite of a friend. She observed a male. Of course, it's a guy. You know, of course, uh, of course uh, it is. Nearby women are too polite and, uh, you know, genteel to do this kind of thing. It was only partially <laughs> exactly. The victim observed the male to have his pants down by his ankles and had, and he appeared to be fondling himself as he sure watched he the victim. Yeah. When the suspect realized the victim had observed what he was doing, he put on his clothes and fled. On, but it's good, Barry, that he put his clothes on. Otherwise, he would have tripped. Barry, Florida man or not? No, no. This this one here took somewhere up on the east coast. This this one took place. Tampa, Florida. Wow. Venerable Brooksville Cemetery. I don't know where the Brooksville Cemetery is. Brooksville is home of two professional wrestlers, uh, retired, uh, Dangerous Danny Spivey. And <laughs> I can tell you this guy would not be doing that if it was Danny Spivey. No, he would not. And Danny Spivey would kill him. <laughs> Danny, and Danny would just have to look at you, and yes. you would be frightened beyond belief and not do it. The other being Garfield Ports, better known as Scott McGee. Yes, of course, naturally. Yeah. Our next story, the headline reads, 10 pounds of meth discovered after being delivered to the wrong address, Barry. Don't you hate when that happens? Yeah, my, my meth always goes to something. Exactly. Like no, I can yeah. see that. Uh, two people face felony counts after 10 pounds of meth. Apparently, wow. somebody was planning a party. Wow. Uh, that was supposed to be delivered to them ended up at the wrong address. According to recently filed charges last week, and investigators were tipped off by a concerned citizen. There's another word for concerned citizen, Barry. Do you know what that is? Yeah, Karen or uh, no, NARC. NARC is what NARC, I was thinking. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the person bought a box to authorities saying it had been delivered to them incorrectly. They opened it without taking note of the name on the box and found 
there was what they believed to be controlled substances packed inside. The contents of the box were determined to be large rocks of meth. By the way, Barry, how excited are you uh, at the time we record this tonight? Better Call Saul is back. Yes, indeed. Know uh, what and, I'm doing. Yep. Yep. And these people probably could have used Saul Goodman <laughs> for some legal advice. Uh, the contents of the box were determined to be large rocks of meth weighing in excess of 10 pounds total, according to the complaint. Investigators learned that a renter at the address on the box had been contacting the building management asking about a missing package. Go figure, Barry. Again, geniuses. Barry, Florida man or not? No, this one is uh, this one's taking place somewhere out west. Elk this- River, Minnesota, Barry. Wow. So, is that a big, big meth hub? I Elk can over. I'm going to defer to your better knowledge on uh, the uh, right. quantities of meth. Uh, Barry, I believe this may be our last story here. It's a good man idea. who evaded good idea, death. Jeff. Good that? idea to defer on on meth knowledge to me, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Well, Thank yeah, you. The consumables, man. Oh, yeah. Meth was included. Oh, yeah. It's the same. I've thing. noticed some decay in your teeth lately. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm I'm pulling the skin off my face. And, exactly. Uh, There's that notable shit. notable yeah. scabs on your beautiful <laughs> scabs, teeth missing, thin, jittery. Sure, that's me. Yeah. Man uh, who evaded deputies by jumping into a pond, <laughs> arrested after trying to outrun authorities. On a lawnmower. Uh oh. There's actually video, I believe, of this story too. Seven months after a man jumped into a pond to avoid being arrested, he was taken into custody after trying to outrun law enforcement on a riding lawnmower. In January, deputies met up with uh, Dusty Moba. Dusty. It's the American dream, baby. Million dollar smile. Towel power, too sweet to be sour. To serve warrants and talk to him about a $40,000 stolen boat. Investigators say, Mobley had used heavy machinery, cutting a hole in a metal building. To this guy's a he's a doer, Barry, a multitasker. Said that Mobley was on a stolen boat when they arrived. He dove into the pond and disappeared to avoid going to jail. When the deputies caught up to him again, he tried to escape arrest by jumping on a John Deere. Nothing like a deer, Barry, riding lawnmower. Deputies gave chase and ended up tasing him. I'm guessing this wasn't a high speed pursuit, Barry. Yeah. Florida yeah. man or not. <sighs> Jeff, when you cut, do you cut the grass? Who, me? Yeah. Uh, okay, I, that's a question no, no. answer. Well, first of all, I can tell you that the home where we are at, uh, our backyard uh, is literally covered with trees, so no grass grows. So right. we have a, a, our the bed of our backyard is all like leaves and, and stuff like that, and our dog's they don't give a shit. And quite frankly, nobody can see it. So who cares? Uh, our front yard is small enough where we basically cut it with a weed eater. Cause yeah, again, like, lots of I trees. Like, yeah. So I, uh, this is, I guess, breaking news on this one. Oh, what, what, what? As, as I have lived in mostly apartments and condos, the house that I was with my ex-wife, which she now retains custody of, and that's that's not a sore spot, so we can. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'll she move wants on. you to come over and cut the grass. No, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a sore spot. That would really be a sore spot. But that was the first real house I ever lived in. I was always condos, apartments, townhouses, etc. And we had a lawn guy. And our lawn wasn't gigantic, but we had a lawn guy in the 15 years we were there. Great, did a great job. But Linda, being way more butch than I am, right? 
Linda is that's not uh, terribly difficult. Exactly. Right. I was going to say that's not a huge <laughs> surprise to anybody listening right now. Linda cuts her own grass. She cuts her own grass. She weed wax. She does all of it. And uh, she got me into it, I guess, about six, eight weeks ago. And I got to tell you, I don't hate it. Like it's this weird. A lot of people say this. It's this weirdly therapeutic way of doing it. Yeah, it's it's work in a sense, which I don't love. Like, you know, I'm, I'm lazy. I'll be the first one to admit it. At the same time, the weed whacking, I think, is what I really like. I think that's actually pretty cool. You like, you like uh, working with the power tools is what you're saying. I do. I do. And then she, her mower is a gas mower, but at the same time, it's not a riding mower. So I, You're kind of like Michael Keaton and Mr. Mom. That's exactly what it's almost like, except I think he was more enthusiastic than I was. But at the same time, I'm not actually hating this. I'm like surprised that I'm not hating this. So you never answered, Barry. Was it ah. uh, Florida man or not story, the guy on the riding lawnmower trying to evade police. This is not Florida. Florida man, Barry. Now I will tell you, it is from Jeez. Holt, Florida in the Panhandle. My brother oh, yeah. lives in the Panhandle, but I have no idea where Holt is. I will say, Barry, I changed one word in the headline okay. because I was afraid it would give it away. That word, I changed swamp to pond. Uh, yeah, same dog, different coat. So, but uh, I figured if I said swamp, you'd think Everglades and guess Florida, and I'm going to do anything I possibly can to keep it from guessing the answer correctly. Certainly, which is the right thing to do. And with that, if you had said swamp for some reason, I probably would have gone to Louisiana. That's of the first thing that pops in my head if I'm thinking swamps. Now, so, the good news is, is uh, we don't have to, uh, we, we don't have to, uh, you know, do the lawn in Louisiana in the swamps because that's a lot of work and there'd be a lot of sweating involved. Let's be honest. Way too much sweating. And the only way I want to sweat is if I'm getting ready to go in either the ocean or a swimming pool. So, well, there's another way that you can sweat if you do it long enough, Barry. Well, <laughs> long enough, correct. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> there's the issue, right? Barry, always good times talking Florida man. We want to thank again, uh, David Edelman, Mark Black, for sending in those stories. Gentlemen, we really appreciate it. So, as we begin to wrap up this particular segment, Barry, Barry, let me ask you if something that I've noticed is something that you've noticed too on the old AEW. Barry Rose, have you noticed for the past, hmm, I want to say five plus episodes of AEW at ringside, the guy wearing the paper bag? Oh, I have. Absolutely. It, is it a paper bag or like a box even? Yeah, it's one of those two. But I saw that and I went, you know, that's the kind of thing that you know, if it happens one week and it never happens again, it's just some guy that decided to show up and wear a paper bag. But when it happens that often, Barry, you hear that? That's me sniffing out an angle. Yes. What sir. do you think? Oh, a hundred. I just, I don't know. This, it's been going on longer than we've even realized. Cause I think it's been going on for months and this is uh, supposedly the husband of Penelope Ford. And of course, when I said, when I told you who was underneath the box, I said, oh, it's Kip Sabian. You were like, who? And I said, oh yeah, the guy who's with <laughs> Penelope Ford. And you went, who? And, <laughs> and, and I said, you know, she was the other blonde that was teaming with the bunny when they were actually having some decent tag matches with uh, Ty Conti and uh, Anna Jay. So apparently it's Kip Sabian. He had been injured and I think that was how this whole thing started. But he's been gone for like a year, maybe even longer. It was the guy that was with Miro when Miro first came and was gotcha. going to be the okay. best man at the wedding and all that. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I do remember that. Okay, I yeah. just don't know. 
I don't know, you know, as, as I look at it, and there's got to be a payoff because this shit's been going on for months. Where does a guy that wears a box on his head, how does that turn into a money-making angle? That's what I would, uh, yeah. So, so, you know, the other thing I thought about regarding AEW, do you realize that over the last mm, close to a month now, the guys that are considered, uh, I, I believe it was uh, MJF that first used this term, the, the four pillars of AEW, MJF, Orange Cassidy, uh, Darby Allen, and Jungle Boy. The only guy that's been on TV for the past month, I believe, is Orange Cassidy. That uh, I should say Orange Cassidy that's getting any kind of a positive push because Darby Allen just got destroyed. And he's lost his couple last couple matches. Uh, of course, Jungle Boy with the angle with, uh, you know, um, uh, Christian. And so here, here you got the, the four pillars and there's only one of them that are really doing anything positively. Uh, do you think this is just giving those guys a breather? Uh, I mean, obviously, MJF is a, a long term thing, but uh, are they giving those guys a breather from getting on TV and bringing back, uh, back fresh? Or what do you think? I. I don't know. I again, I just don't uh, get into the mind of Tony Khan, Barry. I'd like to get into uh, the mind of Tony Khan. Breaking news, by the way, Jeff. Uh, yeah. Well, this is this won't be important except to, except to me. So I have a bucket list of bands I want to see before before I get called uh, either upstairs or downstairs. One of those bands, Jeff, is ABC. the band. So two things. I've either told you that a million times. No, no. You're I fucking just... reading my mind right now. No, I you saw, fuck. I saw something last night about ABC in concert, and I was gonna send you the fucking link. You're so... like, you're like, get out of my fucking head, because this is freaking <laughs> me out right now. I'm thinking. I'm looking into your mind. Ooh, there's some pretty yes. disturbing things. I gotta be honest with you. It is. How so... dare you have that fantasy involving me? That's just, uh, you know, not the kind of thing I want to support. But anyway, continue. ABC there is so. Somebody just sent me a link. It, there's Warrendale, PA. ABC is playing tomorrow night in concert in Warrendale, PA. Shoot it's, that poison arrow right through my heart, Barry. They're not playing anywhere else near me. And Warrendale is in uh, it's Pittsburgh, essentially. So the question is, do yeah. you make the drive? If if Linda could take off of work tomorrow and the day after then the answer is 100 percent. otherwise i go by myself which i don't want to go here's the other thing the next night asia is in concert it's the heat of the uh, moment barry you got to decide see what i did right there? that's great why on a tuesday is abc playing in the middle of nowhere you know in allegheny county but there's no other dates i i i'm brokenhearted but at the same time yeah, I, I don't think I'll be making it. If it was with the two hours, I 100% would be doing that. Okay, let me ask you very quickly. ABC, better song, Poison Arrow, The Look of Love, or When Smokey Sings? When Smokey Sings is a is such a great song. At, I would say in that, I would say Look of Love was a fun song. Shoot That Poison Arrow. They both were the two biggest songs. And I like When Smokey Sings, though. I think that's just an incredible, incredible song. I love the part in uh, The Look of Love when he sits there and goes, 
And all my friends keep asking me, they say, Marty, one day you'll find yes. true love. I, lo- I love that part of the song. So anyway, we've now taken a trip down a rabbit hole with the good folks from ABC. <laughs> On that note, I will remind you that Breaking Cafe about an very production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So on behalf of our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, and my co-host, Barry Rose, apparently thinking about driving to the middle of bumfuck Pennsylvania oh. to see ABC. I am Jeff Bowdern. Sometimes they call me the booker, and we will see you next week. Barry and I both have to go watch Better Call Saul. Take it home, Lou.